The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Acts. And today, the next passage we come to is Acts 13, 13 through 41. It says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found, him no, they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he who God raised up did not see corruption. 
Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am... For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you it to you. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you, Shane. Let's pray. Lord, your word is so true, relevant, and precious. I'm reminded of... Psalm 19, that tells us that it is more precious than gold and sweeter also than honey. Lord, I pray that we would experience it as that this morning. Lord, that you would open our eyes, open our hearts. Speak to us, Lord. Allow us to see everything you want us to see to be changed in every way you want us to be changed and come ultimately to a deeper love of you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most frustrating things a lot of Christians experience is wanting to read the Bible and trying to discipline themselves to read the Bible, but struggling to understand the things that they read. I remember when I was a a new Christian, I knew that if I wanted to grow closer to God, then it was absolutely essential that I develop the habit of reading the Bible each day. And so I opened my Bible and somewhat at random chose a book, the book of Isaiah, and started reading. And every now and then I'd come to a verse that seemed meaningful and that I could understand pretty well and really sink my teeth into. But for the most part, I would just read over things without really understanding the things that I was reading. Um, I, of course, understood most of the words themselves that were being used. Like I had those words in my vocabulary, but I just couldn't really get the meaning of the passages that I was reading. I was just at a loss, of course, also to determine how those passages connected to my life. And I believe that many, if not most Christians, have that same struggle, especially those who are younger in the faith. Whenever they read the Bible, they just feel kind of lost, uh, as if they were wandering around in a strange city or in a foreign country and not exactly sure where they are. So if that's you, I've got some good news, that help is on the way from Paul's sermon here in Acts 13 this morning. Uh, Even though this passage won't instantly make you an expert in the Bible or answer every interpretive difficulty you'll ever have, I do believe it offers us an extremely helpful framework with which to read the Bible so that the things we read will make a lot more sense. Uh, Many of you have probably heard of the Rosetta Stone. 
I imagine a stone discovered several hundred years ago with an ancient text written in three different languages. So it was three different translations of the same message. And it was by comparing these three translations with each other that scholars were finally able to do something they had previously been unable to do, which was to crack the code of ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. And uh, just as the Rosetta Stone proved to be the key in deciphering Egyptian hieroglyphics, there's an interpretive key to the Bible that helps us understand its full meaning and significance. And we find that key in this passage. So look with me beginning in verses 13 and 14. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. So to set the scene here, Paul's been sent out, uh, we read earlier in the chapter, from his home church, the church in Antioch, and is now traveling around on what's often called his first missionary journey. Uh, you can see that journey represented on the map here. And he arrives in a city that's also called Antioch. Uh, not the same Antioch he was sent out of, but a different Antioch in the region of Pisidia. You can see that in the upper left portion of the map. And the text says that Paul's first stop in this new city is in the Jewish synagogue. And we're going to see over and over again in Acts that that's his consistent strategy. Whenever Paul enters a new city, he always goes to the synagogue first. And it makes sense when you think about it, because people in a synagogue are, of course, Jewish, and therefore already believe in the Old Testament. So there's already a lot of, a lot of common ground between them and Paul. And as we're going to see, Paul makes very good use of that common ground. Also, it was customary in synagogues that whenever a visiting rabbi was in town, they would give that rabbi an opportunity to address the congregation. And that's what we see in verse 15. It says, After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, to, to Paul and Barnabas, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul, of course, is like, well, now that you mention it, I do have uh, a few things I would like to say. And uh, the rest of this passage here in Acts 13 contains Paul's sermon. So I was going to prepare my own sermon for you this morning, but I figured I can't do any better than the Apostle Paul. So why don't I just re-preach his sermon? So the, the main idea of my sermon is the same as the main idea of Paul's. And that is that Jesus is the fulfillment and consummation of the entire Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment and consummation of the entire Old Testament. We might say he's the interpretive key, the Rosetta Stone, if you will, by which we understand the full meaning and significance of everything else. That's the point Paul's trying to drive home to these Jews in Pisidian Antioch. So look how Paul begins his sermon, verses 16 through 23. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, 
men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So notice in these verses how consistently Paul emphasizes the various ways in which God was directing Israel's history. He was the one directing things and also pouring out his abundant goodness on his people as he did that time and time again. I mean, we first see in verse 17 that God graciously chose the Israelites for himself out of all the peoples of the world to be his special people, uniquely called and favored. Paul then states that God made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, a second blessing on the Israelites. And third, when the Egyptians began to oppress them, God led them out of Egypt with uplifted arm. And then fourth, he put up with them in the wilderness for 40 years. He then fifth destroyed the seven nations in the land of Canaan and gave the Israelites that land as an inheritance. He then blessed them with judges and then the great prophet Samuel. And then eventually, King David, a man after his own heart. And yet all of these other blessings were merely preparatory for the greatest blessing of all. And that was a Savior whom God sent in the person of Jesus. Again, verse 23, of this man, David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. See, God's people needed a lot more than just a leader to lead them and, and to deliver them from the Egyptians or the Canaanites or from their other earthly enemies. They needed someone to deliver them from the greatest enemy of all. Their sinful rebellion against God and the eternal judgment that was coming upon them because of that sin. They needed a Savior. And that Savior was Jesus, whose very name indicates his ministry, right? Since the name Jesus literally means he saves. Paul then continues in verses 26 through 31. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. 
So notice the tragedy of the situation. Right? Even though the Jews had what Paul calls the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, no less, they still failed to recognize the promised Messiah when he came. The scriptures to which many of them had devoted their entire lives to studying were being fulfilled before their very eyes. And yet they were oblivious. And by the way, even today, it's incredible how much Bible knowledge people can accumulate and yet miss the significance of that knowledge for their lives. You know, just because you know the right answers to Bible questions, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're saved or, or that you're going to heaven. I mean, it's amazing how much we can see without really seeing it all. And that was the case of the Jews in the first century as well, especially in Jerusalem. Right? They were experts in some ways, but clueless and others. Ironically, though, even as these Jews were oblivious to the fulfillment of scriptural prophecies right before their eyes, they still actually contributed to the fulfillment of those prophecies when they unjustly coerced the Roman governor Pilate to have Jesus crucified. Now, at first, we might be tempted to think that Jesus being crucified is an example of things going horribly wrong. And yet, in reality, as Paul makes clear in his sermon, it was all a part of God's plan. God had predicted it hundreds of years before it happened. For example, consider Psalm 22, 16 through 18. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Now keep in mind that this was written about a thousand years before the lifetime of Jesus. And that crucifixion wasn't even a Jewish method of execution. Right? People at that time wouldn't have even known what crucifixion was. And yet, incredibly... The, the author speaks in first person as a, as a figure of speech. He speaks about the piercing, the piercing of his hands and feet, as well as other details that we now know were a part of the crucifixion, like the dividing up of the garments. And again, that demonstrates that Jesus being crucified was a part of God's plan the whole time. You see, our sins cried out for God's judgment. God's holy and righteous nature means that He must punish sin. And yet, in His mercy, He sent His own Son, Jesus, to bear the sins, or to, to bear the, the judgment that our sins deserved. Jesus endured every last drop of the cup of God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to. He then, as Paul says back in Acts 13, was raised from the dead and appeared to many people. 
Paul then states in verses 32 and 33, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Those verses contain the thrust of the entire sermon. What God promised, this he has fulfilled. The entire Old Testament essentially was a promise of one who was coming. And that person was Jesus. What God promised, this he has fulfilled. And by the way, what a great reminder, guys, that God always keeps his promises. Like even the best of people might let us down from time to time, but God never lets us down. We can trust that he's going to fulfill everything he's ever promised us, both with regard to this life and to eternity. And then in verses 34 through 37, Paul cites more prophecies Jesus fulfilled in his resurrection, including Psalm 1610, which states, For you will not abandon my soul to the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. <laughs> Another prophecy fulfilled. Paul then brings things to a climax in verses 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man... Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, it's helpful to understand that the word freed there is actually the same Greek word that's also translated justified or declared righteous in God's sight. Some translations even translate it as justified in this verse. So think about what Paul's saying. Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, Paul says in verse 38. Sins are forgiven, ultimately not by the Old Testament sacrificial system, a radical idea for those Jews, but rather through Jesus. And how are they forgiven? By believing. That is, by putting our complete trust and confidence in Jesus to rescue us. Verse 39, by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The Bible is clear that the law of Moses, all those Old Testament rules and regulations, cannot save. Guys, we, in order to be saved, we don't need rules. We need a Savior. I once heard it described as two doctors, Dr. Law and Dr. Grace. Our first step is at Dr. Law's office. And Dr. Law's specialty is diagnosing our sickness. Through the law, we see how sinful we are. By comparing ourselves to the perfect standard of God's law, we see how short of that standard we fall. And that was the purpose for which God gave us the law. That was his intent. And so we go to Dr. Law's office in order to receive an accurate diagnosis 
of our condition. However, what Dr. Law can't do is provide treatment. If we want treatment, we have to go to Dr. Grace. Because Dr. Law can diagnose our sickness, but that's as far as his abilities go. It's only by God's grace given to us in the person and work of Jesus that our sin can be treated and cured. If we try to obtain treatment through our own efforts at law-keeping and morality, essentially trying to earn God's favor through our own merit, we'll die in our sin and go straight to hell. Because again, Dr. Law, only good for a diagnosis. Only Dr. Grace can provide treatment and a cure. And that grace, dear friends, is found in Jesus. As Paul states so well, by Him, everyone who believes is freed or justified from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So basically, it's all about Jesus. <laughs> That's the main idea Paul's trying to communicate to his audience, that Jesus is the fulfillment and consummation of the entire Old Testament. Now, importantly, uh, this teaching is confirmed by Jesus himself uh, as Jesus is walking along a road with some of his disciples after his resurrection. And Jesus explains all this to them. Luke 24, 27 states, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Again, Jesus is the fulfillment and consummation of the entire Old Testament. And we might add that Jesus is the centerpiece not only of the Old Testament, but also of the New Testament. The entire Bible is essentially one big story that centers around Jesus. And let me elaborate on that a little bit, because this is just critical to grasp if you're really going to understand Scripture correctly. You know, a lot of people think that the Bible is primarily a list of various rules and commands that we're supposed to obey. And it's true that there are many rules and commands in the Bible, but that's not what the Bible is most fundamentally. Others think uh, of the Bible as primarily a collection of stories that uh, talk about various characters who give us a moral example that we're supposed to either imitate if it's a good example or avoid if it's a bad example. And again, the Bible does have a list, uh, a lot of uh, characters that are intended as moral examples for us, but that's not what it is most fundamentally. Instead, at its most fundamental level, the Bible is a story, a single story that encompasses everything in the history of this universe, from the very beginning to the very end. And it's quite helpful to understand that story if we're going to understand the, the various passages that we encounter in the Bible. 
Because, well, it's kind of like a movie. Imagine walking in to see a movie halfway through, right? A movie you had never seen before. How well are you going to understand that movie? Is that going to make very much sense to you when you walk in? No, you're going to have no clue what's going on or what struggles the characters are facing or, or the problems that need to be solved. You'll just be I mean, sort of lost. And that's how a lot of people feel when they read the Bible. But if we understand the overarching storyline of the Bible, then it makes reading the Bible and understanding the things we read a lot easier. So, here it is in extremely abbreviated form. Being the ambitious person that I am, we're going to go through the entire storyline of the Bible in less than five minutes. So put your seatbelt on. And uh, this will be uh, familiar to those of you who were a part of the uh, seminar on how to study the Bible a couple of weeks ago. The story begins with creation, recorded in Genesis 1 and 2. God created this world and declared it to be good. And it was good. It was a perfect paradise. We also read about how God created humans in His image. It says like we were created both to resemble God and for a relationship with God. And then after creation, we read about, number two, corruption. In Genesis 3 through 11, they taught us really well to alliterate in seminary, so that's what I'm doing. Uh, the first humans, Adam and Eve, uh, they rebelled against God. And as a result of that rebellion, all of creation was immediately plunged into brokenness and dysfunction and sin. Like, that's the problem that everything else written in the Bible after Genesis 11 is intended to solve. Right? Creation has been corrupted. So that means we need a Savior. We then read about various covenants, number three, that God made with His people. And that stretches from Genesis 12 all the way through the end of the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. God made these sacred agreements known as covenants with Abraham, Moses, and David that all pointed toward a future Messiah who would come to fix God's broken world. And this Messiah is both pictured and promised again and again, as we've already seen today. And then finally, He comes. <laughs> Another word for Messiah is Christ. That's number four. And the biblical books of Matthew through John record His earthly ministry. This long-awaited Messiah, or Christ, is named Jesus and accomplishes the rescue that we so desperately need. He does that through His sinless life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection. And then before Jesus ascends into heaven, He, number five, commissions the church to tell the world about Him. The church consists of all those who put their faith in Jesus, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well, and has the mission of making disciples of all nations. We find records of the church engaging in this mission, as well as instructions for the mission in the biblical books of Acts through Jude. And then finally, 
comes number six, the consummation, which we're still waiting for today and which is recorded in the book of Revelation. Uh, Jesus will one day return to this earth, not as a meek infant, but as the conquering king to provide full and final rescue for his people. And that involves punishing his enemies, those who have rejected him, and bringing about a perfect paradise known as the new creation, or sometimes the, a new heavens and new earth. No longer will we suffer the brokenness and dysfunction of this corrupted world, but instead Jesus will make all things new. And the beauty of this new creation will surpass that even of the original creation. And so that's the storyline of the Bible. Again, it's one cohesive story. And that story centers around Jesus. Even passages in the Old Testament were ultimately written with Him in mind. And so I promised at the beginning to give you a Rosetta Stone of sorts for understanding the Bible. Well, here it is. <laughs> a framework for interpreting the Bible with Jesus at the very center. Right? He's the interpretive key we need to understand the full meaning and significance of every biblical passage. Every passage from Genesis to Revelation relates to Jesus in some way. And it's not until we've considered that connection that we're able to understand the full meaning and significance of each passage. And by the way, this is a big part of what we mean around here when we talk about being gospel-centered. Every passage in the Bible, we might say, whispers the name of Jesus. Even if his name isn't explicitly stated in every passage, if you listen closely, it's being whispered. And you'll also notice that this is an important part of the preaching ministry of this church as well. Like, we uh, believe, honestly, that people need more than just entertaining stories or practical advice for a better life on Sunday morning. People need Jesus. And not just fluffy truths about Jesus, but real, substantive ones. And until we've preached Jesus in whatever passage we're studying, we haven't really been faithful to that text. That's why you'll hear Jesus preached and the gospel presented every single Sunday at this church. We haven't been faithful to the biblical text until we've seen how it connects to Jesus. You know, let me just say that life application is very important, right? We believe in life application so much, in fact, that pretty much every Sunday we take a few moments, as we'll do in just a few moments, at the end of the sermon to think about how to connect the sermon to our lives. And hopefully you also do that in your Bible reading at home, right? I mean, if you don't, just, just be honest, you're kind of wasting your time if you don't know how it connects to your life. And yet, as critical as it is to connect the Bible to our lives, just keep in mind that the Bible doesn't ultimately revolve around you. 
Do you ever think of that? It revolves around Jesus. And that's something we have to be very deliberate about remembering. It seems like our natural tendency is to be very me-centered in just about everything, including our reading of the Bible. It's sort of comparable to the way people used to think several centuries ago that all of the planets revolved around the earth. Right? They thought that we on earth are at the center of everything. Yet, of course, we now know that the planets revolve not around the earth, but around the sun. And similarly, if we're not careful, we can approach the Bible as if the whole thing revolved around us. When in fact, it revolves around Jesus. So let me encourage you not, certainly not to stop applying the Bible to your life. I mean, by all means, obey God's commands, follow moral examples, let the Bible be your guide for life. And yet make sure your focus as you do that isn't merely on doing all of the right things or checking all the right boxes of obedience. Instead, let your focus be on knowing and loving Jesus. That's what it's all about. Knowing and loving Jesus. It's incredible how simple that is and yet how easy that is to forget. And yet that's the source of all true obedience anyway. Everything we do should be, at least, an outflow and overflow of our love for the Lord. And so to sum it all up, Jesus is the centerpiece of the Bible. Is he the centerpiece of your life?